Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise of foundational truth and unshakable ground beneath our feet in Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone of our faith. Lord, from ages old when you revealed yourself as the rock that bore your people and that provided refreshment and courage for your people in the wilderness, all the way through, Lord Jesus, to the new covenant where we see in Jesus Christ the chief cornerstone, the rock of our faith revealed. We thank you that you have been so patient and long-suffering with your people as to reveal to us your truth, as to give us your holy word. Instruct us in the way, Lord. You have forgiven our sins in Christ Jesus. Lord, you continue to sanctify us by the power of the Spirit's inner working. You give us joy unspeakable and full of glory. You redeem our lives and give us reason to gather and celebrate today. It is in you and of you and through you that all things exist. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have opened up our blind eyes and resurrected our dead hearts to see and savor Jesus Christ. We thank you for every believer in this room that grace has triumphed over sin, death, hell, and the grave. We thank you that those of us who our whole life were captive to the fear of death have been set free from the enemy of our souls and look forward to resurrection life in Christ Jesus. In the same way our heart was resurrected by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, so our body one day will join with you, O Heavenly Father, in your presence forever, worshiping and glorifying the Lamb that was slain. We have so much to look forward to, God. I pray that our eyes would be further open even today as we study your scriptures. I pray that we would be encouraged and strengthened, Lord Jesus, in this in-between time to face the trials that may be presented before us, Lord, with obedience and courage. Father, to continue to grow in our faith and add to our faith understanding that we might represent you more fully and completely. And all that you might be glorified in your people and your church might be salt and light that we might be found faithful, Lord, upon your soon return. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a privilege to meet together, to worship our God together. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the Word. Matthew chapter 18. title of this morning's sermon is Kingdom 101 and Children. How does the concept of children relate to our understanding of the kingdom? This really is the theme of Matthew 18, verses 1 through 14. Matthew 18 opens with a fourth great discourse in this gospel. The gospel, as we've mentioned, of Matthew is really structured around five teaching segments in Jesus' ministry, extended periods where he reveals truths of the kingdom of God. We've covered in our Matthew series three of them to this date, and now we're really on the cusp of the fourth in Matthew 18. Perhaps the theme of Matthew 18 is the church, the gathered people of God set apart for the glory of God, for the purpose of God, and who will be rendered so and effective by Jesus Christ and His propitiatory death on the cross. Kingdom 101 and children. So if you're open, if you're with your Bible open to Matthew chapter 18, stand with me if you would, if you're able, 
Let's read verses 1 through 14 together in honor of God's holy word. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whatever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Verse 7, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has 100 sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Last week we were in Psalm chapter 44, considering the martyr's estate. The church throughout the ages, from its infancy to today, has incurred persecution. In God's providence, He has seen fit to prepare for Himself a witness to Himself, in part through the suffering for Christ's name that His confessing church endures. Thus, when we consider the martyr's plight and the injustice that the psalmist expressed in Psalm 44, that aligns itself with the imprecatory prayers of the psalmist in the Scriptures, we consider alongside those truths a principle in the Holy Scriptures of the sanctity of human life. That is, each one of us, as Genesis declares, as the Word of God documents the origins of our very existence, Each one of us is created in the image of God. Each one of us in our constituent parts down to the very molecular structure of our very being was known in the mind and heart of God before time began. And He commanded at the perfect time for every molecule in your body to assemble in your mother's womb and in the inward parts of that secret place you were put together and formed by the hand of Almighty God. We are not the sum total of the biological, chemical compositions that we see in our universe. Indeed, those are servants of the Almighty God. This universe is guided and directed and superintended by a creator, by the divine. And that goes for every last human being. And how dare we treat the image of God any less than God 
sees the value and dignity of every last one of His handmade creatures. Today we live in a world that despises and rejects the biblical notions of the dignity and value of human life. Sanctity of life is trampled under the uh, jack boots of humanism and in the last years and centuries of recent days we have seen the utter destruction of life, the wanton holocaust of precious souls tread under the autonomy of so-called humanistic man and governments. And this day, today as we consider the Word of God, we're reminded that if we don't value children, if we don't see each life as precious in the sight of God, if we don't value the dignity of the human soul and the sanctity of the human life right down to the least of these, right down to the little ones, right down to the weakest, we certainly are unfit for the kingdom of God. Our text today is more than a fit than fitting for a sanctity of life themed sermon. And actually last Sunday technically is sanctity of life Sunday. But I have chosen this Sunday to deliver a message themed along these lines. And it dovetails so well in God's providence which with where we happen to be in Matthew 18. Our text today is more than fitting for a sanctity of life themed sermon and demonstrates in its context how basic our attitude towards children is to our understanding and participation in the kingdom of God. Jesus opens his fourth great discourse, taking a little child as his object lesson and the church as his theme. The foundational truths of Christianity are thus expounded and a basic litmus test for faithfulness to Christ is thus provided. That is, in the example and the object lesson, of a little child. I'd like to open this message by reading to you two quotes, two quotes by way of introduction. And in light of Jesus' clear teaching, these two quotes sharpen the distinctions in our day in the contested moral ground of the worldview battle that wages over lives of little ones, ultimately over truth and who is Lord and God. The first quote I want to give to you from one of my current, the living heroes in the faith, R.C. Sproul Jr. R.C. Sproul Jr. was quoted recently in his Jesus Changes Everything podcast as saying, I've argued for years that we would see an end to abortion in these United States amongst the heathen when the Christian church agrees with God that children are a blessing. Again, I've argued for years that we would see an end to abortion in these United States amongst the heathen when the Christian church agrees with God that children are a blessing. Agrees with Matthew 18, 1 through 14, for instance. The second quote I want to bring to you is from the godless founder of Planned Parenthood. Speaking in the 1920s, this is Margaret Sanger, quote, Birth control appeals to the advanced radical because it is calculated to undermine the authority of the Christian churches. I look forward to seeing humanity free someday of the tyranny of Christianity. Close quote. Again, Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, among her other infamous quotes, 
says birth control appeals to the advanced radical because it is calculated to undermine the authority of the Christian churches. I look forward to seeing humanity free someday from the tyranny of Christianity. Thus represented in those two quotes, we see the battle lines over the sanctity of human life drawn. We need look no further than Matthew 18, 1 through 14, for the foundational principles of Jesus' own teaching that Margaret Sanger so satanically opposed. Here, Christ insists the bedrock principles of kingdom fidelity are reflected in our attitude towards children. Let us consider four kingdom of heaven observations from this text under this heading, in the kingdom of heaven. This morning, let me submit to you that in the kingdom of heaven, four things by way of summary to organize our text today. Our concerns often reveal our sin. Number one, our concerns often reveal our sin. Number two, in the kingdom of heaven, children represent submission and service. Number three, in the kingdom of heaven, the greatest consequences involve the least of these. And number four, in the kingdom of heaven, risk-reward calculations are based on heavenly values. I'd like to make the case in this message today that these four main points are represented in these 14 verses. Let us see what we can learn as we dig a little deeper into the context of Jesus' remarks. First of all, under our concerns often reveal our sin, let's consider the occasion of this discourse. Jesus launches into this discourse on the church, discourse number four in Matthew's gospel, after hearing a self-incriminating question from the Pharisees. Listen again, 18.1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he, Jesus, put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples, in asking this question, illustrated they're at this particular time in the gospel narrative, Almost absolute ignorance as to the truth, who Christ was, the nature of his kingdom, how it would take root and foothold on the earth, and what their duty and responsibility and agency was related to it at this particular time, it was totally missing them. Jesus had said to them twice prior to this point that he himself was going to lay down his life for the sake of his kingdom being built. We go backwards just a few pages. And it says in Matthew 16, 21, for instance, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Why such a disconnect between the declaration of Jesus and the reaction of Peter? 
Well, I submit to you one of the reasons why is because Peter thought that Jesus was the messianic hero they'd been waiting for. Far be it from him, never let it be said, God forbid, that this man would be cruelly conquered and killed by the reigning authority. No, we want a Messiah that rises up and frees us from the political shackles of Rome. And Jesus said his kingdom is of a different nature and will be built a different way. And he says that he himself will lay down his life and on the third day, then he will be raised. And Peter, in opposing this, in opposing this way that the kingdom work will be accomplished was in direct opposition to the truth of the gospel. Later on in the same section, Matthew 17, verse 22, we have in the record further teaching from Christ. It says, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And here's their reaction. And they were greatly distressed. There was indeed a disconnect in the understanding of the disciples and the declaration of Christ and the purpose of the cross at this time. And the message that they should have heard is, if our Master, Lord and Savior, is sovereignly ordained to suffer for the sake of His kingdom, can we expect any less? Should we not follow Him to His point of suffering? And should we not follow Him in His suffering? Should we not therefore count it joy to suffer with Him? Later His disciples would come to this conclusion. But right now, in the text and in the context of the gospel revelation, they had yet to realize this truth. Instead, they were asking questions like this. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This was a self-incriminating question. As the disciples came to Christ asking, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They were saying in so many words, how can I advance in the hierarchy of your rule and reign and in the kingdom and authority that you will set up? Another way to ask it perhaps is, what is in it for me? What are the keys to success? Or presuming my glory is my greatest gain, how do I ascend the ladder of kingdom prominence? And Christ turns to the disciples and shoots down the premise of their question and reveals to them and to us that our preconditions, the assumptions that we often bring to the table when we come to Christ, indeed our concerns, The things that motivate and drive us oftentimes reveal more about our sin than they do anything else. These days, it is easy to start a movement as it always has been, gathering many people to yourself on the base desire of what's in it for me. These days, churches thrive and grow by a slight change to the message at least it appears so, but I insist, or I submit to you it's a fundamental change indeed. On the surface, we think that we're preaching the same message today as the message of Scripture. But I submit to you, if you discern beneath the surface and most, quote, gospel proclamations today, the message is come to thrive more than it is come to die. The true and original gospel call 
was come to die. Join in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. To come to Christ is to come as a helpless, vulnerable, little child. We do not come to Christ fundamentally for what it offers us, for our great gain and glory, and for a better life and a promise of a hopeful future for our sake. While there are great blessings and promises in the gospel, the fundamental position that a true believer comes to when he comes to the cross is one of death, surrender, brokenness. It's one of repentance, confession of sin. It's not one of careful scrutiny to see, hmm, I wonder if this Jesus deal is all it's cracked up to be. And then a system of negotiations to see if uh, I'll give him so much if he gives me so much. No, it's an absolute total surrender. And in the kingdom of heaven, often the things that concern us most reveal our sins. The question wasn't, the correct question to bring to Jesus wasn't who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The correct question, perhaps an example that the disciples should have asked is, what must I do to be saved? Secondly, as Jesus addresses this question, he does so with a response of turn and become, a telling phrase in verse 3, backing up to 2. Jesus, in calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And emphasizing turn and become, and in situating his response, so Jesus has described the situation as one of a faulty premise and one of a sinful approach to him that required repentance and a change of heart and mind. The word turn in the Greek is strepho, and it's a word that means converted. If we are to turn and become a chi- like a child, When we come to Christ, it is to say, upon further study of the original language there, we need to be converted. We need to have a change of direction. We need to take the opposite and divergent course than what we had previously considered. There is required of the person seeking Christ an about face, an about face. And this word here graphically illustrates a dynamic change. This word for turn is the same word that's employed by John in the Gospel of John chapter 12. It's a related idea. You can turn there quickly quickly with me if you like. In this passage in John's Gospel, the conditions are similar. There is a call in the context of the delivery of truth for counting the cost. And because there are many who are unwilling to, quote, turn and become different than what they approach than the terms that they're approaching Christ they are indeed going to miss the kingdom altogether John 12:36 while you have the light believe in the light that you may become sons of light when Jesus had said these things he departed and hid himself from them though he had done so many signs before them they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? 
and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and there's the word, turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah, verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And you see here that our concerns... When we approach Christ, often reveal our biggest, our greatest sins. There are many who, in a sense, believed in Christ. He indeed is a great teacher. He's got a lot of truth, no doubt. But they did not want to be put out of the synagogue. They were not, they were not willing to put their neck on the line. Why? Because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, there are some who, by God's grace, their hearts are touched and they repent. They turn and become a different sort, a child, humble, on their knees, broken. Isaiah was a prototype of this kind of believer. When Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord, and this is the citation in John 12, he said, Woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips. He recognized in the presence of the glory of the Lord that he was a broken sinner. He was utterly deserving of hell and he was utterly dependent on mercy, mercy for his salvation. Utterly deserving of hell, utterly dependent on mercy. This is the picture of the vulnerability of a little child that is represented in Matthew chapter 18. The occasion of this self-incriminating question brings Christ, provides for Christ the opportunity to tell His disciples that your approach to me is entirely wrong. You're negotiating for self-acclaim and I'm calling you to die. You're negotiating for your own glory. And I'm calling you to, be, to view and to behold the glory of God and to humble yourself, be broken in light of the truth, and submit as a little child. In the kingdom of heaven, our concerns often reveal our sin. In the kingdom of heaven, our concerns are often unjustified. Our deep-seated desires, motivations, worries, and cares... The things that drive us, they need to be analyzed in light of Scripture. Many of the concerns and the presets in our own soul need to be repented of in light of the truth. What a great and beautiful text. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. We have here a great prayer to pray. Lord, make me like a child. Help me to turn and become like a little one, to place myself in your sovereign care as a vulnerable, broken, dependent infant. Help me to do that, Lord. That is the heart condition. That is the approach 
that the holiness and the sovereignty and the glory of Christ and the Almighty God demands of us, His servants, His creatures. Secondly, in the kingdom of heaven, we find in Matthew 18, 1 through 14, that children represent two things, submission and service. I've touched on this, let me briefly expand. As we read verses 4 and 5, we find the analogy, the object lesson of children related to our approach to Christ, further revealed, whoever humbles himself, Christ says in 18.4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Again, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. In the kingdom of heaven, children represent both submission, our own attitude as we submit and surrender to Christ, and service. They represent the object of our reaching out, laying down our lives, and kingdom work. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 5. We've already covered in the book of Matthew, as Christ has revealed the constitution of the kingdom at length, the kind of disposition that marks those who serve His glory and the advancement of His great name. In Matthew 5, the Beatitudes are a great summary list of the kinds of heart conditions that are endorsed by our Sovereign. Seeing the crowds, 5.1, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And this is in his first discourse, first words in Christ's first great discourse. Verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them saying, listen to this, blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so you see in light of this teaching why the disciples were so blind when they said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Don't you remember Christ appears to be saying that I reveal to you That those who advance in the kingdom of heaven count themselves of no account. They are the poor. They are the ones who mourn the meek, the ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness. As an infant child is absolutely dependent on his mother feeding him. If that child does not receive the nurture of the mother, that little infant will be left to die. He will not have the presence of mind or the communication skills or the ability to gather for himself necessary food to last even a few days. He will be withered and gone. And so we are that dependent on the Lord and his word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And it is those who hunger and thirst for this kind of spiritual sustenance that populate his kingdom. These are the marks of one who has been regenerate 
and begins to be sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. He begins to show more marks of mercy on his heart than pride because he recognizes his great sinfulness in light of the sovereign salvation that God has provided for him. There are ones who are pure in heart who desire to see their sin expiated and expunged and propitiated or removed from them so that they may see God. Because it's the delightful gaze of their heavenly Father that quickens the heart of the dependent child to joy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are called, what? Sons of God, dependent little children. So we see in the greater context of Matthew that children represent submission. Christ followers identify with children. Christ takes a dependent little child, this little one, He sets him in their midst and he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, like this little child here, that is to say, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Christ's followers identify with children. They identify with children in their submission to his lordship. We are his subjects not by virtue of our carefully vetted, reasonable, decisive negotiation with the Lord in a quid pro quo arrangement between two authorities. No. So often I listen, I listen to uh, debates and back and forth, unbelievers and believers and some of podcasts and so on, atheists versus Christians and so on. And a lot of times in these exchanges, what is palpably missing, obviously missing in the exchange is that the unbeliever may even sound reasonable, may even sound open-minded. But one thing he refuses to give up is his pride that wants to hold for himself the ability like an adult, like a God of his own, to assess all the evidence before him and to make the right decision before he follows the Lord. I submit to you that this approach of coming to Christ is not, is not, does not accurately represent kneeling before the cross in the brokenness of a little child. We don't search the world over with the textbooks open and eliminate all other possibilities of truth claims before we come to Christ and then decide, I, in my great wisdom and omniscience, have decided to follow you, Jesus, because you're the best option available. I'm not saying that there aren't good arguments and that the truth of Scripture does not stand every single test. Indeed, it does. What I'm trying to describe to you is the heart condition of one who surrenders to that truth. He does not do so as one who has justified Christ as true by his own merits and reasoning. He is one who has surrendered himself to Christ, recognizing that he is dead in his transgressions and sins, and Christ is the holy and the ultimate standard rule and authority. And he has nothing that he can bring, but only to the cross of Jesus Christ he clings Christ's followers identify with children in their submission to Jesus Christ. We submit to the Lord as newborns are dependent on their mother and father. We submit because we are vulnerable, dependent, weak, and indeed before Christ resurrects us, we are utterly lost, dead, and depraved in our transgressions and sins. Secondly, Children represent not only submission, but service. 
in the kingdom of God, not only do Christ's followers identify with children, but in this text, surprisingly, Christ himself identifies with children. Listen to verse 5 and 6 again. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Consider again verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Christ himself in this picture identifies with the child. That is to say the judge of our faithfulness to his kingdom mandate is our care, our concern, and sacrificial love of the weak, the dependent, the needy, and the vulnerable. Here is an illustration, an application of what he has, Christ has previously alluded to in Matthew 16, 24 through 27. Turn back with me just a few pages. Matthew 16, verses 24 through 27. I submit to you that 18, verse 5 is an illustration and application of this imperative. Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And Christ is saying that those who identify with him deny themselves as he did in his incarnation and in his passion and death, and they take up their cross and they follow him. They lose their life for his sake that they may find it. And in this paradox, we have our calling. When we identify as the Bible tells us accurately with who we are in Christ, with our hopeless, helpless condition outside of the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit, as a dependent little child, it is only natural that we would, in the gratitude and overflowing worship of the same Lord that saved us as a child, reach out to those who are children and childlike. It is a mark of the Christian church of all ages that we would reach out to the poor and to the weak and to the desperate and to the destitute, to the ones who are of no reputation. Indeed, Christ modeled this for us throughout the text of the Gospels. I'm reminded again of this list in Matthew 4, 23. He went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And listen... He was healing every disease and affliction among the people, so his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. And in the geographic regions and in the condition of the people, we see evidence in that record that Christ spent the bulk of his time reaching out to those who could not help themselves and who could not pay back what he offered to them in his free grace, so to speak. Thus, children represent both submission and service. 
later in Matthew 25, verse 40, when Christ speaks of a final day of reckoning, it is along the lines of the, and according to the terms of these type of ideas that we're summarizing in this message today, that the sheep and the goats are separated. He says in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with them, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Later He says in verse 40, The King will answer them, Truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And this in response to the question, When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And Jesus Christ, our King, in that final day of reckoning says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And thus I submit to you again in the kingdom of heaven, it is only natural that the Christian church reaches out in the areas of the greatest need, and that children themselves and their station represent both our submission to Christ and our service to Him. Thirdly, this morning, in the kingdom of heaven, the greatest consequences involve the least of these. The greatest consequences, by way of judgment, involve the least of these. Let's continue to read in our main text, Matthew 18, verse 6. But whoever causes one of, the least, one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Greatest consequences involve the least of these. In the first section, verses 6 and 7, there's a sort of external divine government regulation, if you will, that Christ offers to demonstrate the severity of shepherding malfeasance. If those who are called to shepherd, to nurture and admonish young, the young ones, the little ones, the the dependent ones, if those who are called to reach out to the needy, do so in ways that are self-serving and misleading. If they, that is to say, deceive the vulnerable and mislead the gullible in the things that they do and the things that they teach and that they model for them, the consequence for this kind of behavior from a divine perspective, that is, what does heaven have to say about this kind of behavior, taking lightly the calling of modeling and teaching and instructing the little ones, the vulnerable and the teachable, in the right way? Well, if we were to do it wrong, our Lord says it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. 
And the picture here, I'm told, in the historic and cultural context is one of capital punishment. First of all, Christ uses the term great millstone to indicate that this stone, this weight that would be affixed to the body is one that is sizable and will sink the body beneath the water so that it never rises to the surface. This indeed was a practice at the time, I'm told, of capital punishment. The worst of the convicted criminals would be tied to a stone and would be cast into the sea. And not only their execution, but also the terms of their death in this uh, very dramatic way indicated the severity of their crime. If the body would float to the surface, their friends or those who were allied with them could take that body and give it an honorable burial. But in this example, Jesus cites one of the worst possible ways for an utter criminal to receive capital punishment is a deserving recourse for one who would mislead, maltreat, uh, who would mistreat a little sheep, a little child. It would be better for that person if a great millstone be fastened around his neck, be drowned in the depth of the sea. You guys recall a few years ago when Osama bin Laden was finally apprehended by American forces and the way that he, his body was dispatched. In order, the ostensible justification for this kind of thing was that if we throw his body and sink him at sea, then his followers won't make a shrine to him. And so in this way, the infamy of this mass murderer received his just dues according to the dictates of our society. And just as this verse states, he received this kind of capital punishment for his crime, as it were, though posthumously, a millstone fastened around the neck and cast into the sea. This is the kind of severity, this is the kind of sober-mindedness, or this is to illustrate, that is, to say the sober-mindedness we ought to have when we consider our duty to reach out to children, to the vulnerable, to the weak, and to the childlike. How can we practically apply Jesus' words? Recently, I received three messages from a guest speaker at a cousin of mine's church. He asked me to review them because he had some red flags about the teaching. My cousin's a brand new baby believer. I commend him because he obviously was on the right track. He didn't, wasn't quite sure what to think. As I went over these three messages from this guest speaker at this church, I was absolutely appalled. Though this man spoke in dulcet tones, though he was happy, though he paused to laugh, and though he had the crowd in the palm of his hand, as it were, the little sheep were amening. Those who are vulnerable and weak were not obviously shored up in their doctrine. We're thinking that he was making great points. In the course of three messages, this man proceeded to deny the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, the historicity of Genesis. He claimed Satan in the garden was a mythological construct. He claimed the Old Testament was inspired by a subversive response to the Babylonian Gilgamesh epic. He interpreted the Bible by neurological studies and psychology and pagan cultures instead of sound hermeneutical discipline. He denied the doctrine of original sin. He denied substitutionary atonement. He denied the justice and wrath of God. He recommended liberal theologians for extra reading who hold to uh, humanistic hypotheses 
of how the word of God, well, they wouldn't even call it such, came to be. He apparently claimed that Jesus will not return in judgment. He claimed that we participate in the incarnation. He denied the immutability of God. He claimed God continually imagines new ways of being himself. He apparently denied Jesus' sacrificial mediatory rule. He claimed that God lives and moves and has his being through us, and we are how he experiences the material world. And what struck me as I listened, and this was all very subtle, he led you into these points by taking a small piece of Scripture and slipping into heresy right alongside. And it tasted so good to the gullible, to the vulnerable sheep. What is saddest about that picture? What is so dramatic about that picture to me is that this wolf, according to Christ, if my judgment of his message is correct according to the immutable standard of Scripture, is deserving of a millstone hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. I pray that this man repents. I pray that I would repent if I ever misused the Scripture. I pray that every man who steps into the pulpit of every Christ-confessing church in this nation, in the world over, would take so seriously his duty that he would realize before he speaks that depending on what he says, if he would mislead the sheep by misrepresenting God's holy word, it is a crime worthy of capital punishment. The Lord is gracious and long-suffering towards us. No one has his doctrine correct. But if we at least have a fear of the Lord... We have a place to start so that we don't misrepresent him and do great violence to his name and kingdom. Consider, I just gave you an example of instruction and teaching within the walls of the church. Consider the program of government education that our children in this land are submitted to day in and day out. Can we honestly say with any shred of honesty that when these children are given over to thousands and thousands of hours of instruction under government-sanctioned curriculum that gets more centralized with indoctrination intentions every day, that we are not sending our children to the wolves, that we are not submitting them to a program of worldview instruction that will completely derail their faith. The statistics themselves bear this out. Oftentimes, children's minds who are guarded during their grade school years are totally unseated when it comes to higher education and college. Thus, we must take so seriously the programmatic instruction of our minds. Do not be weak and vulnerable so as to submit your understanding to the humanistic whims of our day, to the false authority claims that blow like so many winds of doctrine across the landscape of cultural apostasy. And certainly, for those who are under your charge, your children and those you are called to speak the word to and influence, call to their attention the sober call, the sobering reality of our duty and responsibility to take so seriously the consequences of shepherding malfeasance. Remembering that the greatest consequences in the kingdom of God involve the way we treat the least of these. Secondly, there's a self-government regulation in this text. The Word of God gives us practical ways to take seriously the fear, full task that I've just laid out for you in verses 8 and 9. 
Jesus says, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes or to be thrown into the hell of fire. There are ways that we can govern ourselves, Christ is saying, so as to not commit this great offense. Interestingly, the most common application of this text is in the passive sense that I've heard through the years. Hey, if you're tempted by, uh, you know, sin of the eye gate, for instance, you know, uh, sins like pornography, make sure and cut yourself off from the opportunity. Don't be afraid to take drastic measures metaphorically speaking, to separate yourself from those influences. That is, I think, a worthy application here, but I submit to you that it is secondary. The primary contextual application of what it means to sacrificially separate yourself from the temptation to sin involves not so much the influence of sin on us, but the way that we would influence others to sin. This is because no one sins in a vacuum. And so the instruction from Christ is to govern ourselves, to take extreme care because of the broad-reaching consequences of our actions, to make every sacrificial effort to deny ourselves the opportunity to neglect, to mistreat, or to beguile the little ones. In light of our obligation within this text and throughout Scripture to nurture and admonish children and the childlike among us. We see that the application here is that we should deny ourselves anything that might be tempting that would render us ineffective to advancing the kingdom of God. We should cut off ways that we have influenced, that we have spoken, that we presented ourselves that we've influenced others that might lead them astray, misrepresent the gospel, and portray something that indeed is not true at all. The greatest consequences involve the least of these. Matthew 25, 40, which we've already read. The sheep and goats are separated based on the evidence of their faith lived out in kingdom dynamics, in kingdom reality, that sought to lay down their life for the sake of reaching the weak and the lost. Finally this morning, in the kingdom of heaven, risk-reward calculations are based on heavenly values. Risk and reward calculations are based on heavenly values. Reading again Matthew 18, verses 10 through 14. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven... Their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Risk and reward calculations or service in the kingdom is based not on earthly, not on pragmatic humanistic calculations, but on heavenly values. Jesus modeled the priority of discipling a few 
overwowing the crowds. And this we see in the parable of the one and the 99. Here we see the principle of going out of our way, a great inconvenience, and what man would say is, a great in, is greatly inefficient, going out of our way for the one who is lost, leaving the 99 who are safe in their pen as it were, and spending all of that energy, most of the energy spent on the one, and then all kinds of rejoicing when that little sheep returns. Now, this is a kind of convoluted logic to the natural mind. This way of serving God does not meet the standard of humanistic pragmatism. Wouldn't we be effective just starting a a humanitarian campaign, pouring a bunch of money into a kind of neutral organization that reaches out and just brings clothing to as many people as possible? Well, there may be a time and place for that, but there is also certainly, and Christ is drawing out this clearly in the text, that service to Him is not based on man's calculations and values, but service to Him, effective service of the kingdom, God-honoring obedience in the kingdom of God is based on heavenly calculations. We do not serve because it is rewarding to our flesh or efficient by worldly standards but instead because it glorifies God. In addition to this, this principle of 1 in 99, the risk-reward calculations based on heavenly values, Christ cites three witnesses. He gives three incontrovertible reasons why we should embrace children and the childlike. Three incontrovertible reasons Why the mark of the Christian church in all ages is to love children and to identify with children and the childlike. First is angelic priority. Second is the word of Christ. And third is the will of the Father. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Verse 10. For I tell you. Why? Why should we not despise the little ones? For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Children have a special place in heaven, as it were, in the heart of God. They're given an angelic priority, as it were. We see here God's heart for the weak, the destitute, the lost, and the vulnerable. We see a window into the perspective of glory looking down upon the earth. We should pray to have the kind of affections that would unite with those of the angels Indeed, of God Himself. And if the angels are concerned with children, should we not be also? It's the question. Later, Christ says in verse 13, If He finds it truly, that is that lost sheep, I say to you, He rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that went astray. This admonition is in the context of Christ's own word. I say to you, by the authority of Christ's spoken and delivered word, We are obligated to prioritize the weak children and the childlike. And finally, he says in verse 14, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Because Christ has spoken, because it is the will of the Father, because the angels in heaven themselves are dispatched to protect and to intervene on account of those or in harm's way, we are obligated 
to join with the priority of heaven and to reach out to the lost. Christ said, It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Yet today, in closing and application, let us consider the culture of death and the world that surrounds us, not just in our nation, but in this globe. Let us consider for a moment the blatant, fish-shaking defiance in the, of the eternal and immutable Word of God that we see around us today. There's a website that I referred to last year, speaking at March for Life. And I remember opening my message at the courthouse in Brainerd by reading how many abortions worldwide had taken place since 1980. This is from com, And according to the recent statistics, we see here a real-time calculator that records for us 1,322,684,196,97,98,200,201,202,203,and and so it goes, babies are murdered more than one a second in this globe. This, I tell you, is the fish-shaking defiance of the culture that surrounds us taking human life into our own hands, the most weak and vulnerable and defenseless, the innocent among us, are victims of a whole-scale holocaust that continues to this day. Three quotes I want to close with this morning. The first is again from the infamous Margaret Sanger in a Mike Wallace, something like a 60 Minutes interview, I think in the 40s, she said, In response to a question, do you believe in sin? She said, I think the greatest sin in the world is bringing children into the world that have disease from their parents, that have no chance in the world to be a human being practically. Delinquents, prisoners, all sorts of things, just marked when they are born. That is to be his greatest sin that people, that is, that to me is the greatest sin that people can commit. Do you see that the new Antichrist, quote, gospel or message that is being preached in our world today absolutely turns the Word of God on its head? For Margaret Sanger, the sin was to embrace a child who was dependent alive and righteousness was to take its life. Speaking at Gorbachev's State of the World Forum in San Francisco in 1996, New Age writer, philosopher, Sam Keen stated that there was strong agreement that religious institutions have to take a primary responsibility for the population explosion. He went on to say, quote, We must speak far more clearly about sexuality, contraception, about abortion, about values that control the population, because the ecological crisis, in short, is a population crisis. Cut the population by 90%, and there aren't enough people left to do a great deal of ecological damage. Children are the problem, according to this man. Thirdly, in the impact of science on society, atheist Bertrand Russell and philosopher said, at the present, quote, at present the population of the world is increasing. War so far has had no great effect on this increase. I do not pretend that birth control is the only way in which population can be kept from increasing. There are others. 
If a black death could be spread throughout the world once in every generation, survivors could procreate freely without making the world too full. The state of affairs might be somewhat unpleasant, but what of it? Really high-minded people are indifferent to suffering, especially that of others. Really high-minded people are indifferent to suffering, especially that of others. Do you see the antithesis? Do you see the war of worldviews? I submit to you that by and large, these are the ideas and the culture shapers that undergird the context and the trajectory of our own nation today. And I submit to you that only the church of Jesus Christ can stand against this great onslaught of evil with authority and successfully overturn it for Christ's name by His power if we but reach out to the lost and destitute without compromise. What are we, His Christian church, to do when faced with a world represented by those quotes I just read you? Well... One, I'll just give you two examples, two suggestions. One is just kind of a personal testimony that brought a smile to my face this week. On Thursday, some of us in Brainerd marched for life. Last year, as I mentioned before, I preached a message. In that message, I used three illustrations of fighting back against the culture of death. One was a woman who was in labor after a vasectomy reversal. You guys know her as Marissa. And Piper was born exactly a year ago Thursday on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Praise the Lord. And that's just in our congregation. A symbolic triumph, I submit to you. Second example, we were praying our hearts out because Evan and Jenna were uh, doing the, in, they were in the preliminary procedure of adoption. And little Isaac finally arrived to them and a bunch of us greeted him at the airport Thanksgiving Day in Brainerd. And a little two-year-old flew in from Ethiopia into the arms of his mother and father right there. The third example I gave in that message a year ago was that my wife was pregnant with our sixth child. And Rennick, oh man, what a, just, I, I don't know if you guys think he's as cute as I, I'm sure I'm biased. But I look at that little guy and I think, you are my weapon to fight the culture of death. I look at all six of my children. I hope the Lord gives us many more. I hope he does. I hope we can adopt too. I tried to build as big a house as I could to fill it, to fill it with as many children as we can to fight back. And these are just three examples. Well, March for Life this year, those three babies were there. And now you can see on the Brainerd Dispatch, actually, a photo right on the front page of Jenna and Marissa, double stroller, little Isaac, and there's Piper right there. My mom is quoted, God's providence, mother of nine, I'm her oldest, marching there alongside three generations represented pro-life. And I'm telling you, repentance is also there represented, and victory over death, and a culture of death is there represented. That's just a couple small individual examples in a little out-of-the-way church. But those are the little lights that God can use to shine brightly in the darkness. So I would encourage you, those examples, search your own heart, ask the Lord how you might serve the lost, how you might practically reach out in direct opposition to this culture of self-serving death that we see around us. 
And I'm telling you, in these days, it will be more and more of a novelty and more and more people will ask you for a reason of the hope within if you have even more than three kids walking around. That's about all it takes to be an anomaly today. You can tell them immediately right there at McDonald's the reason why you have as many kids. I'm fighting the culture of death. Would you like to know a little more? (laughs) And finally, I would ask you to pray for the church. I am convinced that it's because those who share the office that I'm endeavoring to be faithful in in this pulpit today, it was, it's because of our own malfeasance, it's because of our own quietude, it's because of our own stepping back, recusing ourselves from the place where the battle most acutely is waged, that the enemy has been able to come in and break through the floodgates with this absolute deluge of apostasy. I'm praying this year, I don't know what God's plans are, But there are some days I long to be preaching on the street outside of one of those clinics to declare to the devil that he is a liar and that my Jesus Christ is sovereign over everything. And I pray that God would build a fire in every gospel preacher's bones that would stand against this culture of death and raise the immutable standard ethical benchmark, the norm of Scripture for what it is. It is the unchanging rule of righteousness by which every individual and every nation will be judged one day. It is indeed cruel if the delegated spokesmen of that standard refuse to declare clearly and boldly the terms of righteousness. If we do not bring the terms of righteousness to the halls of legislature and so on, the places where rules and laws are being adjudicated along the lines of what is life and what is its value. If we do not bring the standard of righteousness, it is indeed cruel because there are blind, lost people thinking it is moral to let a woman freely, quote, legally kill her child. And to them that means compassion. And they will die one day And they will stand before the judge of all the universe and answer for that sin. And we, his people, must raise the standard of righteousness so that they might have opportunity to repent now rather than suffer that millstone in the next life. We have a great burden upon us to preach and to proclaim. And as I bring this to you in strong terms, I'm primarily in this final point preaching to myself. So I'd ask that you would pray for me and others in my position to be honoring to the Lord in this regard. And finally, let's pray together in closing today. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the standard of righteousness immutably recorded, sovereignly preserved, unchanging, unwithering. Though nations rise and fall, grass withers and fades, Kingdoms rise and are dispatched at the snap of your judgmental fingers. There is one kingdom that starts small and begins to build, will never be conquered, and smashes every idol in its way. And we are proud, those of us regenerate in this room, to be counted among those who have been, by the blood of Christ alone, made subjects as children or Heavenly Father of that kingdom. Help us to diligently... Rule and reign with you, Christ. Help us to accurately, consistently herald your truth 
in whatever way this sermon needs to be applied in each of our individual lives, I pray that the Spirit would give us grace to lay down our lives, pick up the cross, and stand for Christ, stand in the gap, stand against the darkness, and raise up the banner of God's holy word and trust that no power in hell will ultimately overthrow the advancing militant church of Jesus Christ so long as we stand on our rock. We thank you that we have firm footing in you, Jesus, because of the price that you paid. And finally, in this room, if there are any who suffer under the burden of their own sin related to these issues I brought up today or any other, I pray that they, through the pages of your scripture, through the declaration of your word, might be brought to their knees in repentance as a little child and place faith in Jesus Christ as the only but sufficient sacrifice for their sin. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.